You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 186. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. And as always, I'm excited about this episode. Um, a couple of little uh, housekeeping things to discuss. So um, I noticed that on Podbean, my show notes look scrambled up. They do not follow the format. I enter them into the software. That led me to Pandora. That led me to iHeart. That led me to some other places. And I realized it's not just Pan- Podbean. It is Pandora and iHeart as well. They don't organize my show notes the way I have created them. And I spent a lot of time to make those super professional with all the links you'll need to discover ways you can become more involved. If you have been using a podcast service outside of Spotify or Apple Podcasts, your show notes do not look like the way I have created them to look. And they do not have live links or basically any of the format that I've laid out. So if you would like to see the show notes the way that they are meant to be seen, Spotify and Apple Podcasts do it accordingly. All the links are live there. It's very flowy, very easy to read, unlike what I noticed over at Podbean and Pandora and iHeart. Just the three that I was looking at from 1 in the morning to 2.30 this morning, (laughs) trying to figure out if there was a way I could change them, and I cannot. The way I've laid them out is the way they will be, and they don't see space bars and, and and enters and stuff like that. It is just the way that it is. So if you use any of the apps that I've just mentioned outside of Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you don't have the links to locate things. And the reason why that's important now is I made up an ebook for Stop Arguing and Start Loving, episode 185. And super awesome. I'm going to begin to build out lots of these little ebooks based on the episodes so that those of these um, shows that are very heavy with information, you'll be able to go get the ebook, follow along, and you'll be able to you know do some of your own journaling and studying around the topic that I'm talking about. Because that is the point here. It's not just to passively listen, although I love that many of you do that while you're at work and working out and driving. Please, by all means, continue. But when you hear things that um, elicit some level of emotional surge in you and you want to dive in deeper, I want to create something around that. So not every episode will have those, not every episode will have them immediately, but it is something that I will begin to create a system around and I'll start running ads in front of the podcast to remind you of this. So today's episode is going to be with some some pretty heavy, heavy material, not like emotionally make you want to cry material, but um, self-reflective introspective level of material. So in my alcohol addiction and awareness class that I am taking through the University of Alabama for the Certified Recovery Support Specialist Program here in Alabama, we have been discussing adverse childhood experiences. And one of the coolest things about learning about adverse childhood experiences is coming to the realization that we really don't have any control over what might turn into an adverse childhood experience. Let me explain. First, this episode is going to be very much about adverse childhood experiences and the kind of archetypes you develop as a child in order to handle what's happening around you, right? And whether we would want to label that good or bad is irrelevant because we don't really know what an adverse childhood experience is going to be when we're young, Right. And some of them are super simple, right? You know, you lose a parent, um, you lose a loved one, you get in a car accident, something like that happens. Okay. Pretty easy to say, get in a car accident, family member dies, um, you know, get beat up, um, have somebody abuse you, hurt you, something of that level. Okay. That's pretty obvious that it's going to be an adverse childhood experience. Something is going to be created in that child's mind to help them uh, attach meaning to it to be able to cope with it, to be able to, you know, quote unquote, heal from it. Because most of the time we are being raised by parents who are themselves raised by parents and the chain continues of lack of self-awareness and emotional intelligence. I've talked about this many times on the show. I feel very strongly about this, that we as a species haven't put as much attention towards our mental health as we 
would have been, has it would have behooved us to, has it would have benefited us to. And I know you are all open-minded because you've been listening to this show for so long. So as we dive into this stuff, just be mindful here that whether you want to attach something as bad or good in your childhood as being what perhaps created an adverse childhood experience, just understand that you did what you could as a child with the resources you had being raised in the family unit that you were. And what ultimately became an adverse childhood experience, and the acronym for that is ACEs. So whatever became an ACE for you is just what became an ACE for you. And for somebody else that may not have been an ACE. And we can't say, well, that didn't bother me. Why is it bothering you? No, we're not. That's not who we are anymore. Oh, well, that, you know, my parents were always working and I was left home alone and I'm just fine. Okay, that's your opinion of the situation and that's great for you. I, however, didn't have that kind of uh, a meaning attached to it. That's not the experience I had of my parents always being gone. Where this is going to be very obvious is the generational gap that has been created by the 80s and 90s and the millennials. We were, as 80s and 90s children, we were latchkey kids, most of us. That was a big thing. I remember it being a big thing because two parents went off, started working in the 80s, that even continued on in the 90s, and it's still very much prevalent now. The sharp correction that we have had um, because of this generational gap is those who were raised as latchkey kids now could potentially... (laughs) lean to that tiger mom, tiger dad kind of helicopter parenting because we were left on our own for so long and we could have seen that as being either good or bad. Having that level of independence could have been seen through a myriad of lenses. And now we have shifted the way we parent based on how we were parented. And this is just cool to know because if you're wondering, well, why is that person so up their kid's ass all the time? It could be because nobody was up their ass when they were a kid. And it starts by being able to reflect upon these archetypes that we're going to go over. That your parenting style will very much have a link to these archetypes. So we're going to dive into these. And again, are they good or bad? We don't know. You know. When you yelled, mommy, mommy, look, look, mommy, mommy, look, look, did they always look? Are they always looking? So now that's caused a version of you that always needs people to watch what they're doing, always wants that kind of external applause for things that they are doing. Or you yelled, mommy, mommy, look, look, and mommy, mommy never looked, looked. And now you just don't think you need people to pay attention to what you're doing. You don't need external applause. You don't need people patting you on the back because you as a child taught yourself that mom's not going to look, so I'm just not going to need her to look. I'm just not going to care she looks anymore. Maybe you stopped trying so hard, right? Now maybe you're not trying to do good things anymore because mom's not going to look anyways. Or you start trying to work so hard to do such great things so that mom has no choice but to finally pay attention to you. You see just in this one example, the different forks in the road that can occur from something as simple as a child saying, mommy, mommy, look, look. It could go to trying hard to get the attention, trying hard and not caring if you get the attention, not trying at all and hoping you finally get attention, not trying at all knowing you won't get attention, right? That's just four, and I'm just popping those off the top of my head. So let's get into these archetypes. And again, and I'll say this for like the third or fourth time, are they good or bad? Only you know. It's going to take you sitting down with a pen and a paper and some journaling and asking yourself, are these, um, not are they showing up in my life? Some of these are absolutely in your life. Are they benefiting you still? Are you seeking to build your sobriety and recovery around an older version of you that worked then that isn't working for you any longer? It's very similar to the fact that alcohol and drugs were once our savior and then became our dismantling. They worked for a period of time until they didn't work. Now it's time to figure out a different way. It's the same with these archetypes. They worked when they worked, and now it's time to figure out a different way. And if you're a parent, then you can start to notice these in your child. And if you want to drive yourself mad and try to figure out what behavior of yours could have possibly have helped create this within your child, I think that you'll spend a lot of energy trying to go back and find the root 
of this behavior, when instead you could just be nudging your child to find a balance between them all. We don't want to lean too hard on either of them, and we don't want to completely ignore them either. And you'll understand deeper as to the why of that and the what you can do as we start to get into these. So let's jump in. Now, there's lots of different studies that have been created um, for this. And I'm not going to get into all the particulars of the studies. I don't want to get you lost in the muck and mire of my research and of this class. So I won't mention, you know, the Black uh, was one of the researchers in 1981, came up with uh, certain roles that family members take, whereas another study, uh, Wegg, Scheider, and Cruz in 1989 found similar roles in families of alcoholics. So the roles that people play um, toward the alcoholic and then the role that the alcoholic could have taken on. And as I learned more and more about these and and the class did a great job of tying them to ACEs, um, I realized that this is the foundation for the behaviors that lead us to just the way we act as adults, what we do. Now, will that lead to addiction? I mean, no, none of these by themselves will lead to addiction, right? There's so many things that happen inside of the brain and the body that will start to fire off that. But these will absolutely play a huge role um, in how you begin to discover the true you in your sobriety and recovery. Because for a lot of us, if we had a substantial amount of ACEs in our childhood, we may never have actually developed the truest version of ourselves. We could have been so um, into these archetypes, unconsciously creating ways to keep ourselves in some level of balance that we weren't really able to ever figure out who we wanted to be. And now we're older, and now we have the, uh, the gumption, the ability to, to go through this information and say, where do I want balance within these now? That's really what we're looking for is a balance, a homeostasis, this congruency that once in a while I want to be codependent, and once in a while I want to be independent. There's going to be times where you're actually going to want to uh, enable someone to achieve something. And there's going to be other times that you're going to want to um, step back and allow them to uh, experience their own journey and have to suffer the consequences or be able to appreciate the success of it based on their own merit, on their own work. And so um, let's get in because I'm super pumped about this and I think I've given you enough lead in to be excited about this. Okay, so the first one we're going to go over, and I'm going to call them archetypes, and we're going to run these archetypes through adverse childhood experiences, um, ACEs. And so let's get in and let's discuss. Codependent, right? This is the person who enables the substance user, right? We all know of someone in our life who helped enable our substance use, right? Um, They could have been the enabler. We, We talk about this codependency, this enabling, of you know, protecting the alcoholic from their negative consequences, enabling the substance user. We all had somebody in our lives who was doing this, even if it was just their passive um, decision not to do anything. There was still a, a level of enabling, right? Are you an enabler in your family? Were you an enabler when you were a child? Did you find yourself um, always wanting to uh, protect someone in your family from negative consequences? Right, And so, you know, you had a sibling and you wanted to protect them from a negative consequence. So you did everything in your power to not have them have to face anything negative, which took a certain level of independence away from them, of self-reliance away from them. And now as you're older, they might be very um, lacking in self-reliance. They might be constantly needing somebody else to help them accomplish stuff. And that could lead them to getting disappointed by people not always being there for them. That becomes an ACE, that becomes an adverse childhood experience, that could become an adverse adulthood experience, and that can lead to further development of addiction, you know, dependency kind of behaviors. Likewise, if you are just completely step away from anybody, your childhood, anyone, just picture anyone you want to picture when we, when we do these. If you completely step away and you don't uh, protect them from anything, then they might feel like they're all alone in this journey that is life, that there's no one on their side, especially you being the parent, being the loved one. Like, aren't you supposed to protect me and help me and be there for me, All right? So there can be this 
autocorrect so far away from the enabler, from the codependent, that we don't really want to step in at all. All right, so now that per- that, that can that can uh, cause isolation and depression and all of these negative feelings that there's not somebody there for them. Now, I'm not saying that we want to be enabling alcoholics in our family, and certainly I don't think enabling an alcoholic uh, was a good idea for anybody in my family to do towards me. But there was absolutely a part of me that remembers asking my bio dad for help, talking to him about cocaine and LSD and ecstasy and drinking. And, you know, he was so afraid of pushing me away so I wouldn't call him anymore, wouldn't be around him, wouldn't want to communicate with him because he saw how I treated my mom by cutting her off for like three years. He didn't want that to be him. So he enabled my using by not being forthright, answering my questions, not being more pushy. At the same time, by not giving me responses, telling me, Jesse, this is not how you, I just wanted somebody in my damn family to tell me this is not what I was supposed to be doing. And it, the, the window to do that was like 18 to 20. That was a, it was a very small window. By the time my stepdad tried to start, you know, pushing AA and crap like that on me whenever I was uh, 22, 23, I, that ship had sailed. I was like, fuck you guys. You didn't want, you didn't want to care then? Sure as hell don't give a damn that you want to care now. Right? So by saying nothing at the beginning, they enabled the behavior. I, it further isolated me. It further created animosity in a very emotionally unintelligent teenage version of myself. And so I lashed out by being even more excessive and doing it even more harshly to myself, by isolating myself, by not contacting any of them for months on end. And this was pre-cell phone. So it was a lot harder for people to call you up, right? I mean, you know, they didn't have a phone in your pocket. So you literally had a phone in your house. So you could just always not be there and then just don't have an answering machine. It's perfect. It's the perfect storm to never have to contact anybody. It's a little more difficult now. But even in 2016, when I sunk down into the depths of my despair and addiction, when I broke my leg skydiving, um, I still managed to just put the cell phone in a drawer and ignore it for days on end because I didn't want to be around anyone. So where um, can you look back at your childhood and notice a certain level of codependency or enabling being presented to you? Now, how are you going with it or against it as an adult? Are you the anti-enabler? So you push everyone, no matter, oh, you need $20 for lunch, screw you, you should save your money better. Are you, what are you doing? You, you, you got Netflix? Well, stop having Netflix and you have 20 bucks for lunch, right? It's like, are you auto-correcting so hard from any level of enabling that you're, you're coming off as harsh or are you the enabler? Are you somebody who steps in and doesn't let anyone feel negative consequences, doesn't have to solve their own problems? I'm just, a lot of this, I'm, I feel like if you're a parent, you're going to be able to look at it through the scope of what you're doing and then notice, does your child have a certain level of codependence or enabling happening? As well as you're going to be able to look back at yourself and ask yourself, is this going on? Um, one of my tribal members, um, who I'm specifically thinking of as I do this, and I've said her name before, I know she's okay with me saying it now, um, is Lindsay. And I know that you're listening and I know that you got sober and, you know, you are seeking to become this better parent for your child, uh, and doing this in a very loving relationship with your boyfriend. And so it's like, part of me is like, wow. And I know that, you know, Tim and Kaylin, you guys all have kids too. And you're more at miles. You've all said you're cool with me saying your names on here. So as I'm doing this, like I'm picturing y'all, I'm thinking about how are you raising your children now and what level of self-awareness, uh, Crystal, you're out there with kids too. Hell, Helena, Karen, I mean, so many. am I the only one without a child? Uh, <laughs> and then I see it and then I look in the mirror and I say, nope, there's my child. Um, all of you, right? Uh, so I'm picturing all of you on my head and I'm wondering where are you going to see this in your children? Where are you going to see this in your childhood? And how are you going to be able to monitor this? Again, it's neither good nor bad, y'all. Right? And so, yeah, part of me right now is speaking directly to the tribe. And of course, I'm always speaking to all of you. But it's not that any of this stuff is good or bad. It's simply that you want to have awareness. Is this happening? Where can we get a balance in it? What are some of the things that you're doing that could be influencing this behavior in your children? What were some things that were happening to you as a child that were being influenced by your parents, your preacher, your teacher, your, your inner circle, your peers? So we have codependent and the enabler. 
Now in the black, uh, in the in the again, these are like two different ones. I'm combining all into one, so they each have their own five. Or yeah, and so I'm just sort of combining them because I think codependent enabler um, very similar, right? They enable the substance user. They protect the alcoholic from negative consequences. Who was that in your life? Who was protecting you? Who was protecting you as a child? And who are you doing that now that could begin to grow some of these codependent enabling kind of relationships? happening because we want to create a level of self-reliance and independence within our children, within ourselves, while also realizing that there are people out there who can help us, who will be there for us when we need them, right? It's like, yeah, I get it. I shouldn't have crashed my car into another tree being drunk, but making me sit here in the hospital by myself is not the time to teach me that lesson, (laughs) unless it is. Again, I can't determine that for you. You have to seek the answers out for yourself. The next one we're going to go over is the archetype of the responsible one. This is the person who wants to bring order to a chaotic home. Was your house chaotic when you were a child? Did you want to bring order to it? What order? What did order look like to you? Was this rearranging all the bookshelves so that the, the, the book spines were all the same color? They were all together. Was this organizing the pantry a million different ways? I actually have like a random example that just popped into my head that I just would just something like this that just happened. And this is minuscule, but it's still it just this one right here just made me think of it. The bringing order to a chaotic home. So we went out trick or treating last night with my brother and my sister in law and the kids. And so leaving their house, they brother gives me this huge bag of candy because we hadn't bought any candy and we didn't do trick or treating at the house. But I do like candy, and so he's like, "Hey, do you want a big bag of candy?" I'm like, "Hell yeah, I want a big bag of candy." So big bag of candy is sitting on the countertop. Girlfriend comes home from uh, her thing this morning and she puts it all into these three Tupperware containers and she separates them out into an organizational pattern that. Uh, means something to her. So like all the airheads and the sweet tarts and all those Twizzlers kind of candy go into one bigger one. And the chocolate gets broken up into two different kind, one that's got caramel involved and one that doesn't have caramel involved. And they're just in there and it's just a bunch of candy, not organized at all. I go in there and as we're sitting there talking about our days and mornings and whatnot, I just dump each one of them out separately and organize them, like start stacking all the candy bars and organizing them so they're all front facing (laughs) It's just like super, you know, some of you might be thinking anal, OCD, whatever. To me, there were containers that were very chaotic, and I wanted to know how many Twix bars we had and Kit Kats and and, uh, 100 Grands and Almond Joys. I wanted to know. I wanted to know how many there were in there. (laughs) So, So I dumped each out individually, and I stacked them all up really nice, and then we put the lids on them, and now they're in the pantry. Like, Did you have some level of seeking order to the chaos? My brain still just naturally likes to do that. My mom had a colostomy bag. That thing would break open and and her fecal matter would pour down her leg and end up at Sears, at airports, at zoos, at school functions uh, in Brown County. When we would go to Nashville to go to the baseball card shop called Johnny's, it would, this fucking bag would spill shit all over her so many, so often and so many times that we started to carry around, not started, like fucking day one damn near needed this thing. We started carrying around a bag full of supplies so that she would have extra clothes, extra shoes, extra colostomy bags, glue, scissors, tape. I mean, it's like, to put this thing on back in the 80s was like a a torture device from like Game of Thrones. This thing was so ridiculous. Um, And I started calling it the shit bag. And because she shit, this was the bag to go grab. And there, there was order. I had to have order inside that bag. Could not not have order. I needed to know where the scissors were, the tape were, because I was going to be the one handing her that stuff or helping her do it because her hands were going to be covered in shit. It was just the childhood, whatever. It happened. Love her to death. It breaks my heart to this day that Crohn's was something that she ever had to live with, let alone the family. Um, anyways, there was I needed order. When that thing would break, I th- th- that was, uh, for most people, it would have created chaos, and it did at first. I had to create order order around it. So the shit bag had to be organized, the system of getting her into a stall or getting her into a dressing room, getting her somewhere in private so we could get this thing taken care of, wet wipes and, you know, like non-toxic cleaning things with rags so we could spray her skin. I mean, the whole freaking deal. I had to create order where there was chaos. I still do it. I still do it. 
right? Some people might walk into my office and think, oh, what the hell, dude, I don't see any order to this. And I mean, and I keep things very, very tidy and very well organized, but I can promise you I could close my eyes and I could walk directly into a closet and tell you where the red Sharpie is. That's just my thing. Now, other people might've been so prone to creating order with, amongst the chaos that now they're older, they don't want to. So you walk into their home and it's completely untidy. And it's dusty, and they don't know where anything is because maybe they were raised by a parent who was so particular about where everything is that they auto-corrected, they sharply corrected the opposite way, right? You see this in like grandparents; they're all hoarders. Well, as children, they're you know I get that 1920s is the Great Depression era, so most of them are in their 90s now. If you have a 90-year-old grandparent, somebody in their 80s who remembers what it was like to ration for the World Wars all the way up until the end of World War II and 45. And really, there was a bit of transition there. But when we got into the 50s, we started being a much more abundant society. So you'll notice anyone who was a child pre-1950s is going to have that hint of scarcity in their mind. It's going to cause them to hoard. This is why old people hoard things, because when they were younger, they didn't have Right by not having, there was chaos. So now, as a, a as an older person, in order to not have the chaos, my grandma wanted to have eighty seven flower vases because heaven forbid she had to go to the hospital and wanted to take a vase. So she just bought every single vase she could find at the DAV and Goodwill. That was one of the thousands of things that she hoarded. Hoarding is a mental health issue, and it comes from the psychology of the child trying to create chaos or um, revolt against the chaos, trying to create order or a revolt against the order. So look in your life, where is being the responsible one, bringing order to the chaos in your home and in your life, something that's still influencing you strongly now. This can be directly tied to the hero archetype. The hero archetype takes greater responsibility, will be the high achiever. Did you have somebody in your family, perhaps you or a sibling who was super high achieving? Right? It seemed like anything they touched turned to gold. Straight A's, star of the basketball, sports teams in high school, went on to college, crush, 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 crushed it. Right, Crushes it throughout their 20s. Next thing you know, they have some sort of adverse adulthood experience. They're not prepared for it because their life has just been a series of victories for them. Next thing you know, they're the 42-year-old getting smashed down on wine or vodka because they hadn't faced any real adversity in their life because they had taken control so much to seek high achievement and to, and to be the responsible one. That the moment that the divorce happened or a, a tragedy happened in their life, they weren't necessarily prepared for it. Conversely, you could have the person who was the um, the child around, the friend around this person who was the high achiever. So now you could feel less than, beat yourself up for not being what they are, and not figure out why is it they're so disciplined and I lack so discipline. They have so much amazing willpower. I don't have the willpower. Now you could make yourself feel like shit when you're around this person, or you could ostracize them from your life, even though they were a great benefit. You see now how the hero, this taking greater responsibility, this desire to be a higher achiever, can affect your life. Again, is it good or bad? You need to decide this for yourself. But now you understand there's a codependent archetype, an enabler archetype, a reasonable one, um, the reason of the responsible one archetype and the hero archetype. Where are these showing up? Right? Do you see your child acting like the hero, wanting to be the high achiever, getting down on themselves when they don't get a good grade? That can create a fixed mindset. And if they think, well, you know what, if I can't get a straight A, I'm not even going to try. And then when they become adults, they don't try new things. They don't experience new ways of living or they don't jump out of airplanes um, with a parachute or go on that adventure, you know, backpacking through Europe with, you know, for a, a year. They don't do these things because they get so set upon being the high achiever that if they can't achieve highly, they don't even want to try to achieve anything. Be mindful of this one. We also have the adjuster archetype. This is the one who will detach emotionally and adjust to any situation. Um, Sue Mandel comes on the podcast a lot. She did sober sessions with me back in the, uh, I think, 80s-ish of of this show. She's going to be on the show here soon. She talks about how she was a chameleon. She could adapt to any situation. She was the adjuster. 
She didn't want to be ostracized or left out of any of the groups. So she very much got herself to know how to conform to all of the groups. Right? This can cause you or your child or someone you love to not be themselves in front of people because they don't want to be perceived as being outside of what's happening. Now they don't get to be themselves. They never really feel all that connected to anybody because they are detaching emotionally and adjusting to the situation. Were you doing that in your addiction? Would you rather not do that in your sobriety and recovery? Did this behavior get formed as a child where your parents would argue or you know you would get picked on at school? So you detach your emotions and become a chameleon and start dressing like the popular kid or dressing like the bully. Start liking other things other people liked, even if you didn't like them, just so you could fit in. This adjuster will begin to spread throughout your entire life. And then are you ever actually really doing things that you just like? Right? I love football. Girlfriend does not like football. I'm not going to adjust my love affair for football based on her wanting to go to Ross on a Saturday afternoon. That's not going to happen. But I do understand that there will be other times where it's like, okay, I don't need to watch Montana State versus, you know, Albacore State. Um, This game is not... Any, in no way, shape, or form going to benefit anything I care about when it comes to the world of football. Yes, let's go to Ross. Right? That's a healthy adjustment. Completely deciding you no longer like football because the person that you love doesn't like football is an unhealthy adjustment. Any more than being like, nope, there's a football game on and I am not going anywhere. By God, I am going to watch San Jose State play New Mexico State, even if, I don't, even if both teams are 0-11. Right? That's being too sharply towards the non-adjustment. So where did adjusters show up in your life, this detaching emotionally and adjusting to any situation? The placator archetype tries to make others feel better. This is very much known as a people pleaser. Always trying to make people feel better. Always wanting to be there for people and help people. It becomes so ingrained, this placator of making others feel better, that you'll actually not take care of your own needs in order to take care of other people's needs first. In sobriety and recovery, we know that self-care is one of the most important things that we can be focused upon each and every day. All right? Put on the oxygen mask for yourself first before you do it for the person sitting next to you. It is of the utmost importance you are taking care of yourself. Being a people pleaser and always doing things for others wanting to make sure that you are there to help them feel better is going to cost you energy points. It's going to wear you ragged. And if you're always trying to make other people feel better, at some point you could begin to grow animosity and resentment towards this person because you're always working on their happiness and maybe they're not doing it back because they don't have the placator in them. Or maybe they had a placator in them as a child and they decided they don't want to be like that as an adult anymore. And did they even consciously make the decision? But now you feel like you do everything for them and they don't do anything for you. Awesome opportunity to have a conversation around this idea of people pleasing. Because if you have, if somebody in your life has to feel good in order for you to feel good, you are setting yourself up for a humongous downfall. Somebody else's emotions are not your emotions. Their emotions are not your responsibility. You can help them with their emotions. You can guide them with their emotions. You can certainly influence their emotions by doing certain things toward them, but you cannot make them feel anything based on what you do. It is their choice to feel better because you brought them soup. You might have brought them soup, and the first words out of their mouth was, I fucking hate soup. Why isn't this a grilled cheese? Then you run off in the kitchen to make them a grilled cheese, Right? When it's like, that really how that interaction should have gone? Maybe you could have asked him, what would you like to eat? Super grilled cheese first before just trying to people please and placate and not really knowing. And now you've got a little resentment because you spent all that time making soup and all they wanted was grilled cheese. Where is placator showing up trying to make others feel better? And are you doing this to your child? Are you noticing this in your child? We have the acting out child archetype. The bad behavior distracts the attention. What attention? Who knows? They want some level of attention. They either want it or they don't want it. One way or another, they'll start to act out. And we all can remember ourselves doing this when we first got into addiction. We're acting out. Does it get attention? Nope, doesn't get attention. Just like I explained to you about Ball State. 
I just explained this. I started acting out because I felt like my mother and stepfather and dad had all abandoned me, weren't even paying attention. So I started acting out. I'd call them up. Mom, man, I blacked out on some vodka, snorting cocaine, eating some acid. Didn't do nothing. Nothing. No showing up at my dorm with a U-Haul. No showing up and, and, and taking me to the guidance counselor. Or, well, I guess it's college. Go, taking me to the, the therapist. No, no nothing. No active role in anything that I was doing. I was acting out. I was begging for somebody to care. They didn't. They didn't. My girlfriend I had at the time um, certainly was paying attention and certainly had recommended that I not behave this way. But my response to her was, if I can care, you can go away. I'm going to do this. Because it wasn't her's approval I was looking for. It was my parents. I didn't care about what she thought. I cared about what they thought. And they weren't thinking anything. Or they were certainly not showing me anything that remotely made me think they were thinking anything. I didn't feel it, so I just kept doing it. So when you were a child, did you start acting out to gain attention to distract attention from another one of your siblings who may have been going through something. If you were raised in an abusive household, you could have become the active out child, the acting out child, in order for the parent to only beat you, only hurt you, right? If you're acting out, then the parent's putting all their energy toward you, and none of that vile wretchedness is going towards your siblings or going towards the other parent. So you act out, so all the attention's on you. That's a way that you could start to notice, especially if you came from a very traumatic childhood with full of aces that had to do with physical, emotional, mental abuse, that you're acting out. Could have started then, and then, of course, once, you know, once the kids under the bleachers hand you a cigarette, or you were the kid under the bleachers handing people a cigarette, like I was in college, I would take normal women who had no interest in doing drugs at all and introduce them to marijuana, LSD, and cocaine like somebody was paying me to do this. Um, I was the acting out child who then wanted more people to act out with me. So that's another archetype to be extremely mindful of. Because if you um, still think that bad behavior is a way to gain um, or or attract or distract from attention um, in your sobriety and recovery, then you might think you want to do good things and then you don't get any attention from it. So then you act out and then all of a sudden you get the attention again. In psychology, in NLP specifically, we call this secondary gain. Somebody's secondary gain from walking around like Eeyore and telling everybody they're depressed is that people call them, people hug them, people pay them a considerable amount of attention because they're so depressed all the time. And if they were all of a sudden, you know, go and get um, help with that and then not be depressed anymore, or at least all of the time, now all of a sudden people aren't calling them as much, not patting them on the back, not giving them hugs, not being there for them to try to cheer them up. And they like that attention. So not only do they feel depressed, but then they feel like if they get healed from the depression, they might lose the very thing that actually is making them feel better. So the rare times they get... They, they, they get the level of attention that will allow themselves to choose to feel better becomes the very thing they're afraid they'll lose if they actually get themselves healed. Do you see how this, you know, this snake eats its tail on this one? It's, it's, it's super interesting to ask yourself, what is the secondary gain you get from having certain archetypes? Right. If you're if you eat a bunch of sugar and everybody in your family is constantly worried about your health and asking you about what you eat, it might annoy you to always be asked about your cholesterol level or how many slices of bacon you ate in the morning. But if there's an internal child in you that wants the attention, that that needs that kind of love to be presented to them, and this is the way you have figured out to get it then your desire to cut back on the bacon is going to be unconsciously blocked by your childhood desire to be getting this kind of attention. Even if you present it as annoying and frustrating that everybody's always asking about your bacon consumption, unconsciously, that little child in you is just so happy that people are paying attention to you that if you shift that behavior and eat less bacon, that child might think it will no longer get that attention and therefore the child doesn't want to stop eating bacon. And as much as you are telling yourself, I need to get my cholesterol level down, there's a part of you that says, but if you do this, you'll stop getting the love, you'll stop getting the attention, and we want love and we want attention. The one thing every human is addicted to is love and connection. 
We can sit here and say, I don't need anybody. I'm fine alone. I don't ever need to talk to anybody. But the fact is, we do. We need love. We need connection. We may not need it as much as the other person. It might only be a phone call every 20 minutes. Uh, every 20 minutes, that would be a lot. <laughs> 20 minutes a week from our mom or our dad or our kids. We might not need a ton, but we need some. We need some level of it. Is it healthy for us? That's for you to determine. Are you saying you only need 20 minutes because you're afraid if you asked for an hour and they said no, you would have to suffer the, the consequences of that feeling of rejection? But you really want an hour, but you're only asking for 20 to what? Not feel rejection? So you're feeling rejection anyways because they don't just offer up the hour. All they're offering is 20 minutes, but you have never specifically asked for, for the hour. You just keep hoping that they will somehow, through what? Osmosis? Brainwaves? Through some sort of, you know, awesome, unconscious matrix energy surge, just one day call up and say, you know what? I think from now on, I'm going to start dedicating an hour to us every week and not just 20 minutes. (gasps) Well, thank you. It's like you read my mind. Or you could have just fucking told them, hey, this is what I would like. Is this something that you're open to? You know how awesome that sentence is? Hey, this is something that I would like. Is this something that you're open to? Instead of saying, this is what I want, do it. You say, this is something I would like. Is this something that you're open to? It creates a conversation, whereas others might make it a demand. And no one likes being demanded of anything, especially because we all have a little child in us running our lives through these archetypes. So if the other person thinks that by being there an hour a week for you is somehow going to enable you, right? And they're over here, you know, wanting to be the the anti-placator, the anti-adjuster. Now they think that they're placating you and adjusting their needs for yours, right? Because they went, they went the other way. Instead of being an adjuster or a placator, they went anti-adjuster, anti-placator. And now you're over here asking for an hour of their week instead of 20 minutes. And that anti-placator, anti-adjuster is going to surge them. They're going to want to fight back. This is why we're seeking a balance in these. So you've got the hero who uh, takes greater responsibility and the higher achiever. We covered them a minute ago. We've already covered the enabler. Now we're going to discuss the lost child. This is the one who needs, whose needs and wants perhaps were overlooked. If you're the middle child, you came from a big family, you may not have felt that your needs, your emotional needs, your physical needs, your mental needs were being uh, taken care of by your primary caregivers. Now you felt, then you felt overlooked, and now you might similarly feel overlooked um, as that little child who was lost, who was not um, the primary uh, focal of attention because perhaps you had the higher, achie- the higher achiever uh, sibling, right? They were the hero. They wanted to take greater responsibility. They were a higher achiever. The parents always complimented on them on how they were you know, taking care of their other kids, uh, amazing grades, amazing at school. They were the ones with all the ribbons. Now you feel like the lost child. Because you're not getting the, the what little attention your parents had when they came home from work exhausted or from whatever it was they were doing. Now you don't feel like your needs are being met. Are you perhaps missing an opportunity to make sure that your kid it doesn't feel like the lost child? And this goes back to the latchkey kid and the helicopter parents. We as 80s and 90s kids, a lot of us had this sort of lost child, like parents would go away to work. My mom was super sick, right? I'd come home, she'd be taking a nap, wouldn't get up till like four or five. Dad comes strolling in at seven or eight. That's when we finally got to eat dinner. He'd want to watch a little TV and go to bed. There was very little interaction unless I did something to get in trouble. And then there was interaction. So I would try, I didn't want the belt, so I would do things that would allow me not to get in trouble, right? I would study way harder than most people needed to in order to get good grades, so I wouldn't suffer the consequences of of what would happen if I got bad grades. Problem is, is I didn't get the love back for getting the good grades. I got, good, that's what you're supposed to do, right? But I bring home a B fucking minus, and I get the leather belt up against my bare ass? Like, come on, the punishment and the reward were nowhere freaking near. Right? What, what do you think this does within a child? What do you think that creates? It's like, okay, I only get your attention when I do something bad, but when I do really great things, I don't get any attention. I don't get any applause. Why am I even doing this then? Right? So for me, I, just, I, I started to internalize it. I convinced myself I didn't need affirmations. I didn't need anybody's applause or support. I would just do it for me. And I still have that little child in me. 
I, I am starting to heal that, and I'm not starting. I'm continuing to heal that and noticing that I do like words of affirmation. I do like some applause. I do like that kind of support. Right? We all have that version of us that wants to be noticed for what we're doing, for the level of dedication we put toward things. It's there. So are you missing an opportunity with your child or within yourself during your sobriety and recovery to heal that lost child? I put a, a lot of effort into making sure that this lost child in me who, who felt overlooked, who didn't feel like his emotional needs were being taken care of, this adjuster where I detached emotionally and boxed up my emotions because mom had crap all over her. The last thing she needs right now is me crying. She needs me handing her the, the, the wipes and the tape and the scissors. Right? So there's a lot of versions of me going on, and all of them are being healed through my sobriety and recovery journey. And where are you perhaps parenting uh, and having one of your children either feeling lost or you are way overcompensating? And now you are so up there, tookish, that nothing is being overlooked and there's no level of independence being formed. We have the mascot archetype, distracts from the problems of the family. They'll be cute. They'll be funny. Right, so if you had a sibling who was the the acting out child, they were doing bad behavior to gain or distract certain levels of attention for some their own reasons. You could have become the mascot. Now you're cracking jokes, you're doing putting on plays for Thanksgiving. You're all over, right? I mean, you're just the one everybody wants around. You're oh, laughy, laughy, jokey, jokey person. You see a lot of the mascots um, archetype in stand-up comedians. One of the reasons I probably took to that so well. Right. Um, Matthew Perry recently came out with his book and he was on Diane Sawyer talking about his addiction. He wanted to make his mom laugh. He wanted to make his dad laugh. They divorced. That was tough. He felt like he was the, the lost child. Mom and dad lived on different coasts, married new people, had, their, had new families. Now he was that lone child in the middle that belonged to the previous marriage and they both had all new families. How was he going to cope with that? Right? Then he became the responsible one, trying to bring order to the chaos that was going on. He became the, the placator, trying to make them both happy. And then that grew into the mascot, where he wanted to make his mom and his dad laugh. That led to him to thinking that the only way he could get love from people was to make them laugh. That grew into the only way that I deserve a woman's love is to make her laugh. That grew into I'm not worthy of love if people aren't laughing. Right? He goes off into acting. He is blessed to have gotten into friends or this, who knows where his addiction would have taken him financially and the emotional turmoil. But even at the height of that show, he talks about how he would go from skinny to fat based on whether he was eating, you know, 65 Vicodin a day or drinking a liter of vodka. And while I applaud celebrities who come out for the addiction, I think our society gives a lot of attention toward that, not realizing that they literally have someone in their own lives who's going through that, who doesn't get to be Chandler, but is also amazing in their own right. And if we paid equal attention, or even one twentieth of the amount of attention that Matthew Perry is going to get for this book and for coming out. And he's right. He has a voice because of friends and whether people should be listening to them as fervently as they are because he's coming out, he gets to grow the attention towards mental health and addiction in a way that I can't do because I don't have the friends backing. I, you know, when Simone Biles or Michael Phelps comes out and talks about mental health around performing at their highest on the world stage to make the country happy and how tough it was for them. And Simone Biles doesn't perform uh, and, um, uh, compete in some of the events that she had trained her whole life to do so when she was, when they were over in Beijing last summer, right? Now all of a sudden mental health comes out and we're like, wow, if someone this amazing and this strong and this focused and this disciplined even has mental health, how is it actually happening in my own home around me right now? Again, loving the celebrities coming out, I just don't want us to forget that we have our own celebrities in our own lives, in our own houses, and you might have somebody behaving like a mascot who's going off and doing the Chandler Bing thing. Because as long as they're getting attention or taking attention away from somebody else's problems or from their own problems and they're getting laughter, then they feel like they have worth. Therefore, they're worthy of love. But what happens when the laughter stops? What happens when they tell a joke that doesn't go over and now all of a sudden they feel less than? 
well, shit, I didn't make them laugh today. I must not be worthy of love. How can I mute these feelings? Enter in Ali Alcohol and Victor Vicodin. It's not too hard to see how, you know, a jet ski accident that messed up his shoulder and next thing you know, he's introduced to Vicodin led down this slippery slope. Would he have gone this deep? We can sit here and argue about what the... um what the choice point was on where we went left versus right all day long. If it was in our chemistry to find these substances and become wildly addicted to them, at some point they were going to find their way into our mouths, into our veins. This is where you hear about people who are like, I didn't have any addiction issues until I was 42 years old. And then something happened and then I got it under my lips. I got it into my body and all hell broke loose. It's like it was a, there was a crack in the dam it was just waiting for that right moment to split open and melt. It was just a matter of time before it happened. Because it was happening under the surface, and we can trace it back to these archetypes. The last one I'm going to go over is scapegoat. This is the distracts from the problems by getting into trouble. And think about how the distracting, getting into trouble, lines up with the acting out child. Right? Now, I see him... I see how they sound similar, but also I experience them differently. All right, the scapegoat could distract from the problems by getting into trouble. The acting out child, that blatantly is somebody who acts out to attract or distract from themselves or others. When I hear scapegoat, though, I experience that as someone who takes on the responsibility of others, even if that means they get into trouble, because they would rather they would rather just face the consequences themselves and have the that have to have the other person face those consequences. Was this you as a child? Did you allow yourself to be the scapegoat uh, as a child so that your siblings didn't have to take on any kind of punishment or retribution? Or was somebody else the scapegoat and they were always pulling your ass out of the fire? Or was it the anti-scapegoat where no matter what you did, it was somebody else's fault? Or you tried not to do anything wrong, so then there would be no fault at all to anybody to have to take on. So it's like you lived a life of isolation and non-adventure, because heaven forbid, if you did something that you know went a little sideways, now there's repercussions. right? With each one of them, there's immediately four I can rattle off. right? It's, it's that Cartesian coordinates. It's like, like, if I did this, would it be good? Would it be bad? If I didn't do this, would it be good? Would it be bad? It, it's like, there's the, those are the four. Those are the super easy ones to locate. All right, there's a infinite different ways this could play out in your, exence, in your existence. But with all of these, the codependent, the responsible one, the adjuster, the placator, acting out child, the enabler, the hero, the lost child, the mascot, the scapegoat, with any one of them, you could look and say, okay, um, the hero. Well, where did I take on the hero and be a high achiever, All right? So that I could take away the attention from somebody else. I could make myself feel better. Or where did I take on the hero and the high achiever to try to make up for something? Where did I go anti-hero? I didn't want to be a high achiever because I didn't want to be uh, perceived as, you know, the teacher's pet, the little, the snooty one. Or I didn't go high achiever because I didn't think I was worthy of it because somebody else in my family was already doing the high achieving, right? The placator, trying to make other people feel better. Is that something that you did as a child, always trying to make others feel better so you could feel better? Or were you always trying to make other other people feel better so you could feel needed? Or did you go against it and say, I'm never going to care about how other people feel because I want them to be independent. I don't want them to rely on me. Right now, people see that as selfish. Or I never want to help other people feel better because you know um, I don't want to be reliant upon their happiness for my happiness. And now you become aloof, uh, non-emotional in relationships where people really want to experience your emotions. Right, so you can look at any of these and say, "Wow, there are at least four very distinct ones that come from this." And then, where else does it show up in your life? Where is it showing up in your parenting style? Where is it already starting to show up in the way that your children behave and the way that they're acting around you? Where does this show up at work? Where is this showing up anywhere? You can take these 10 and you can find them everywhere. You know, I can't help but look at like the adjuster. Um, No, hold on. Which one is it? Uh, The placator tries to make others feel better or... um, 
yeah, that, that one specifically, the placator, like the people pleaser. Um, very much, I remember, you know, back in my very heavily using days, um, reading a lot of books on like how to find the perfect mate, how to find the perfect woman. And a lot of them would say things like, you know, sort of uh, say something negative to the girl so that she doesn't think that you think that she's the bee's knees, that she's the cat's meow. My God, I'm using sayings from like 1932. Um, basically, it's like, don't put her on a pedestal. So knock her off of it a little bit because most guys probably put her on a pedestal. So just so make some chinks in that armor. Right, it would it would talk about how don't be a people pleaser. Are you cold? Are you hot? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Can I do something? Do you need anything right now? Because that'd make you a little bitch, right? It's this psychological warfare that these books and these different kinds of people will try to convince you is the normal way of living. As if that's actually the way that you'd want to attract a mate. If that's actually the way that somebody would feel special in your life. If there's a part of you that placates and that people pleases, okay, it might come off subservient. But the person who, who the, what is it they say, those who, those, who, um, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. At some point, you'll find the person who's been looking for you everywhere. No matter any relationship that's ever ended, when I've coached anybody through one, I say, look, in life, there is that, um, there's that person where it's like, I, the, if, ever, for, okay, let me spit this out, Jesse. <laughs> For every person's, I never want to see you again. It's another person's, I've been looking for you everywhere. So you might have that placator, and somebody might really like that because maybe they're not a placator, right? Maybe they don't, or maybe they've always had somebody placating them and taking care of their needs. Now, is that good or bad that you're taking care of somebody else's needs before your own? You have to figure that out. Do you feel subservient? Are you always doing the laundry, making the bed, making the dinners, mowing the lawn, taking the kids to school? Are you constantly placating, hoping that you can make this person happy so they'll be happy toward you so you can feel happy? Because there's a whole lot of ifs going on in there. If-then statements happening all over the place. If I can make you happy, then maybe I can be happy. If I can be happy, then maybe I can love myself. There's a whole lot of if-then going on all based on this one idea that if I can placate them enough, um, they'll be happy with me. They won't leave me. I won't have to suffer um, rejection or abandonment feelings. So you bend over backwards. You, you constantly sacrifice yourself time and time and time again so you don't have to feel these other non-desirable uh, feelings, but at the same time, you're creating non-desirable feelings in yourself because you feel used, taken advantage of, not appreciated. This is where these archetypes are so nasty and so beautiful because done in a balance, done in a balance with one another, they can create a very um, amazing, fulfilling life. There's going to be times where you might take on the scapegoat. You see it in sports. A quarterback will take on the blame even though the receiver clearly ran the wrong route. Right, making being the mascot, distracting from some problems. I mean, hey, I had a friend call me recently who lost a loved one, you know, and I told her right off the get go, I'm not the best person to call about death. I've buried like 15 people. I'm gonna crack jokes, and some of them might seem inappropriate. Just let me know if what I'm if what I'm doing is actually helping you or not. And it opened up the conversation to just the most amazing shares about the lo- the people I've lost and the people that she's lost and the people that she's close to losing and you know because of age and health and the people I could be close to losing. It was the most amazing connective conversation because I was up front right out the gate and said, look, I, I'm a bit jocular. I, I make some jokes about this kind of stuff because death, it's almost like I, I, I either completely shut off from it, completely detach myself emotionally, the adjuster, so I could adjust to any situation, or I'm overly emotional and it, and it, and it can... Um, I can want to help that person by taking on their emotions and getting right there at their level so they can feel connected. And neither one of those done to an extreme is going to benefit the conversation. So I let them know, hey, and it turns out I was being the mascot. Sometimes being the mascot when something goes down and being funny and jocular at at home is, is, is good to cut the tension. The lost child, right? where your needs are once overlooked. There's going to be some times where maybe you don't turn when the kid says, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, look, look. They need to have that level of independence. Drop them off at practice and say, all right, go out there and rock it out. I'll be back in an hour when it's done. You don't have to hover. You don't want to be that helicopter. You want them to realize that they can still perform at their best even when you're not watching. 
Because one day you may not be able to watch. And do you want them so programmed to only be able to perform when you're there that they can't perform when you're not? That is not independence. At some point, they're going to need to do things without your supervision. The hero taking great responsibility for high achievers. Where is this showing up? Right? We all we want to achieve in life. We want to achieve in life. But if we push ourselves and run ourselves ragged in this, in this seeking of achievement, it can burn us out. And with burnout comes hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And right behind that is addiction. Just fucking waiting, doing one-arm push-ups out there fucking doing crunches with a semi-truck, you know, on its belly, being like, don't worry, I'm ready, I'm ready, <laughs> just just sneeze the wrong way, and I'll have you at a fucking dealer's house in 10 seconds. Enabling, we want to be conscious of our enabling, we want to be there for people, but not so there that they don't feel like they have a level of independence. Acting out child, be looking for that. What are they trying to distract from, or what are they trying to draw attention toward? The placator, making other people feel better. It's great. You want to make people feel better. You want to bring them some soup when they're not feeling well. But there's going to be other times where your emotional needs are going to need to come first, where they're going to have to figure out their emotional needs on their own because they can't always be doing things with your uh, pushing and your support. At some point, Michael Phelps was in that pool with very few lights on, no one yelling at him, not even his coach Scott Bowman was yelling at him. It was just him and the pool and his desire. The adjuster, detaching emotionally, right? We don't want to necessarily be overly emotional and start crying. Somebody comes to you with something and they want to cry about it and they want they want to release something. And then you start crying so heavily that they're now supporting your tears, right? And I get some people, you know, we're very emotive. We, we say that we, you know, we feel things deeply. There's a term for that, you know, where people think, you know, they, they can sense other people's emotions. But taking somebody else's emotions on as your own then you're not creating the space for them to share about their emotions. Now it becomes your collective emotions. And heaven forbid, it even becomes your emotions over theirs. They came to you seeking support, but now you're the one who is crying so hard that they have to stop being the one getting support and start being the one giving support. So we don't want to overly detach, but we don't want to um, under-detach either. And then the responsible one, you want to bring order to chaos. That's great and all, unless you're sitting there in the pantry for the 77th time organizing your pantry. I get wanting to create order amongst chaos. And then there's some times where it's just fun to let things be a little untidy. And then we have the codependent, enabling the substance user. All right, there's going to be absolutely go to the hospital, get them out of jail. Tough love might show up and you need to stop doing some of those things because you've already done them so many times. We don't want to. We don't want to push independence on them so much that they feel isolated and left alone. But we don't want to push codependency on them so much that they feel like they don't have to worry about any of the consequences or do things for themselves. And I can get after hearing me talk for on and on for an hour, and then summarizing these things again in like less than ten minutes. This can seem like a lot to juggle, and I'm not expecting any of you to take all of these things in and immediately figure all of them out. But putting some effort and some journaling time and some questions amongst the family to see where these things are showing up will create a conversation. It'll further implant all of this stuff into your mind because you'll turn it into a conversation with your loved ones. You'll get to experience it together and you'll be able to achieve yourself forward as a collective unit. And going back into your own childhood and seeing how these archetypes created the version of you now will give you insight toward what it is you can start to heal, what it is that you really enjoyed, make the enjoyable parts stronger in you, and make the healed parts within you healed. Because Once you can put a level of self-awareness around how these archetypes have been guiding you, then your awareness is there. The self-sabotaging can be called out for exactly what it is, and you can start to heal your traumas. Adverse childhood experiences are happening to all of these children, all of the time. And that's a pretty, okay, maybe not all. It is happening to all of them, but all the time's a little overboard. It's frequently enough that even in psychology, we cannot pinpoint exactly which one is going to cause something. So don't fret about how, you know, picking them up late from school for 30 minutes or not saying that you love them as they leave the door or not being at their sporting event to watch their home run. Don't concern yourself if that's what's going to cause an ace. Instead, put your attention toward having a conversation with them. 
knowing that you love and support them, but you also want them to to create their own independence and their own self-reliance. Let them know that there is a, that there is a method to the madness and that will create a connection that allows them to share with you later on when something goes down in their life and they need the support at its highest in that moment. It's probably what we didn't get as children. And we can absolutely, as adults, as parents, as friends, as loved ones, bring that to the table now. And with these 10 archetypes, I believe that you are firmly on your way to becoming that emotionally intelligent, grounded version of yourself that you sought when you first started quitting or the version of yourself you know is locked inside of you and you're still using. That's it for today. I love you all. As always, the power of positive energy, release and flow. I skipped up inclusivity over exclusivity. I did. I skipped that. You know why? Because I wanted to say this. I got links. I got ways of being involved. Do you want some one-on-one coaching? You want some group coaching? You want to join the hub? You want to support me through Patreon or the Stand Store? You want the free eBooks that I'm creating around these podcasts? All those links, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, they're available. It's not hard to find them. Uh, I will also make sure all of these links are active in my Instagram soon. Okay, there we go. Inclusivity over exclusivity. The power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives because we wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine, Glow On, and see you next week. Bye-bye. 